Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, May 3rd. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's financial show, we're digging into five big takeaways from Berkshire Hathaway's latest shareholder meeting over the weekend. We've also got a few more earnings reviews on tap for you. Joining me this week, it's Certified Financial Planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how is everything down there in lovely South Carolina? Well, it's kind of rainy today, but other than that, it's a pretty pretty good day. How about you? How's it going yeah, up there? You know, it's a little overcast here. We had some rain uh, through the night and then into this morning. It seems like it's clearing up a little bit, so... Uh, Hopefully, uh, hopefully that'll be clearing out for a nice weekend here, or a nice week here. But I mean, it was it was a you know the weather was really nice over the weekend, so that was a bonus. Um, well, over the weekend, while the weather was nice, there were probably a lot of people who opted to stay inside for a decent bit of Saturday because a little thing known as the Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholder meeting took place. And Matt, that is uh, obviously one of the big events of the year for investors of all walks, uh, oftentimes has been re- uh, referred to as the Woodstock <laughs> for capitalists. Um, having the opportunity to go out there one year and actually experience the meeting was uh, something I'll never forget. I mean, it was really a lot of fun and, and being out there uh, with with the press with the press badge, no less. I mean, that really made it like the first class experience from start to finish. Um, and if I recall correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you've not physically been to that meeting yet, right? You were planning on going and then all this COVID stuff happened. So you've had to postpone those plans for a little while. Yeah, I had uh, hotel reservations in 2020, um, had to cancel those. Uh, then I rebooked it for 2021, and they made this one virtual, too. <laughs> Not only was this one virtual, I think it was in California. It sounds like this next year, though, will not be virtual from what I could ascertain. Is that right? I hope. Um, I hope Munger can make the trip because he they, they held it in California to accommodate him this year. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's he's... You know, we're all getting older, but but he's he's no spring chicken. Though I did like the way he I like the way he he phrased his his aging. Right, I think he's he's aging at one percent annualized here or something like something <laughs> yeah. to that effect. I, Charlie Munger is who I want to be when I'm 97. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that, and I, I yeah I'm I'm right there with you. I, I think he's 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 done it right. He's done it right. Well, I, listen. Speaking of Charlie and Warren and all of the 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 fun. Uh, stuff that 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 occurs during a normal uh, year at the Berkshire meeting. Clearly, virtual is is a bit of a different different story, but but all, always insightful, always educational. We always always get some really neat takeaways, and and this year was no exception. And and so I wanted to jump in into this with you because you know we were talking before the show here, and there were there were some things that really stood out to you, and and I. And I I, uh, I I agreed with a lot of it, but but let's dig into these takeaways because I, I think you've got really you've got five fun takeaways to talk about here today. So let's just jump right in uh, with takeaway number one. Yeah, there were more than five. Obviously, we can't get to right. all of them. You know, it's a long meeting. Yeah, um, I I can't talk for as long as those two guys can. So yeah, we got to draw the line <laughs> somewhere. So we're just going with this is our top five. You're your top five. So let's let's see what you got. 
Well, one of the biggest ones is Charlie Munger kind of let slip who's going to be the next CEO. <laughs> um, it it was it has been between um, you know there was there, the succession plan obviously has been been a big focus for years. Warren Buffett is ninety, Munger is ninety seven. They're human beings. They're not going to be leading the company forever. You know, I mean, Buffett has even said he might retire at some point. Um, so it's been highly speculated who was going to take his place. We got some clarity a couple years ago when they made uh, Greg Abel and Ajit Jain the two uh, co-chairmen or the uh, vice chairman of the company to join Charlie Munger as vice chairman. So we knew it was going to be one of them. Um, he uh, And Munger said it's going to be Greg Abel. Um, he, well, he let it slip, and then Warren Buffett yeah. confirmed it later on. Um, <laughs> and it makes sense. There, um, One of Buffett's biggest points of choosing a successor is someone who could potentially lead the company for a few decades. Greg Abel is 59. The The other co-chairmen are, or the, the co-vice chairmen are 69 and 97, if you include Munger in the equation. So the 59-year-old is the one who's most likely to stay Berkshire's CEO for a couple decades if he gets the job. So that's, I got to think that's really what, what made the decision. Um, in that respect. Um, both are doing great. Greg Abel, by the way, is currently in charge of all non-insurance operations at Berkshire. So he presides over uh, you know, the railroad business, the utility business, Dairy Queen, <laughs> the Duracell, all the, pretty, all the little adjacent businesses that pretty much everything but the insurance portfolio and the stock portfolio um, is, is currently what he's presiding over. So I, I, I'm Everyone pretty much assumed it would be him, but now we finally got some real confirmation about Berkshire's succession plan. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, it feels like it felt like going in at least that I don't know. To me, at least, it felt like it was probably even money whether it would be Jane or Abel, right? I mean, that was that was. I, I think there were there were enough people out there who thought it, it could be Edget Jane. Given his experience with the business, given his familiarity with the insurance uh, business in particular, but but to that point, and, and that's what struck me was with with Mr. Abel, given his bigger picture focus for the company, it, it seemed like age notwithstanding, maybe he was the better choice given his bigger picture view, right? Not just focused on really insurance, but 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 focused more. And, and he's even said this. He tends to stay focused on the competitive threats uh, for Berkshire Hathaway writ large, right? As a conglomerate, as this gathering of so many different businesses, he's he's always he's always focused on those competitive threats and that competitive landscape. Whereas Edgit Jane is is clearly very focused on the insurance operations for obvious reasons, and that plays a very big role in Berkshire's um, business. Uh, I, to me, it, it kind of feels like they got this one right, though. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um... Like I said, the age is a big thing. And the other thing is that they want to preserve the corporate culture, which the culture is have all these conglomerates and don't tell them what to do, which uh, Greg Abel is really the one that's over that part of the business, as you said. I mean, Ajit Jain, um, I would even make the case that aside from his age, he's the favorite of the two leaders um, in Buffett's eyes, just reading the, the praise he's gotten in annual letters over the years. But, I mean, you can't really make the case that there's anyone more connected to Berkshire's corporate culture right now, aside from the two at the very top who are whose succession plan we're talking about uh, than Greg yeah. Abel. 
Yeah, yeah, and I mean that makes sense too. I mean, having having a company, I mean, they, clearly Warren and Charlie feel like they've gotten this company to a good place. They like uh, the potential. They like what the future holds. They want someone in place who they feel is in line with what matters most to them. Um, and and so and so certainly uh, it'd, be, it'd be it'd be tough to come up with a name other than than Mr. Abel, uh, perhaps perhaps Mr. Jane. But but here we are. Uh, so. Whether it was an accident or not, uh, we know a little bit more now than we did before, and typically as investors, that's a good thing. Um, what about takeaway number two? Well, let's get to the Bitcoin part because <laughs> let's get this out of the way <laughs> because right, I know everybody. Jason is going to be triggered and offended by these comments. Hate mail is addressed to Matt Frankel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't. It, it, they're not my words. <laughs> no, no, no. That's right. We're just we're just communicating what we've heard. But yeah, I, I thought this would be a fun one to talk about. So yeah, let's let's dig in a little bit to Munger's feelings on Bitcoin. Yeah, so first of all, Buffett dodged the question. He even said, I'm dodging the question. <laughs> yeah, it's like politics. He he completely understands that his opinion on Bitcoin is not a popular one. Yeah, Buffett does. Yeah. Um, Munger has always been kind of an unfiltered speaker. And whatever filter he had, now that he's 97, is gone. <laughs> he's had some pretty uh, you know mean comments about Bitcoin through the years already. Um so he said, of course, I hate the Bitcoin success, is what he said. He said, I don't welcome a currency that's so useful to kidnappers and extortionists and so forth, nor do I like shuffling out a few extra billions and billions of dollars to somebody who just invented a new financial product out of thin air. <laughs> if that wasn't enough, he went on to say that it's disgusting and contrary to the interests of civilization. Wow. So tell I mean, us how you really feel, words. Charlie. Yeah, those are strong words. And I mean agree with them or disagree with them i mean that's that's not really i mean we're just we're, we're talking about obviously his feelings on the matter and granted he's not the only one i'm sure that feels that way but yeah i mean it does it does seem like he's opening the invitation uh for a lot of blowback there from the younger generations of investors who feel like uh, he's too old. He just doesn't get it. Bitcoin is the future, uh, whatever it may be. And and um, I mean, I, it, everybody's got an opinion on the matter. It's it, it's it's not like it's not like Charlie is just some sort of uh, guy who picked a couple of stocks and rode that success. I mean, he's he's been part of building something pretty special and pretty pretty meaningful over the last several decades. I mean, he he knows a thing or two. I know. I mean. I don't want to get involved in the Twitter war. I know there's a lot of people at, at the Motley Fool even who like who love Bitcoin, who are big believers in it. Um, so it's a very polarizing investing topic. Yeah. Don't well. Be... I mean, I think it's interesting too, like because you said, and and I mean, I think these are his words, but he refers to it as a currency, and 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 there's a debate to be had as currency versus asset, right? I mean, two two very different things, and and so. Um, it, it it certainly depends on on the perspective of, of of how you're viewing it, whether it's it's an asset or a currency or something else. Yes, I mean, what I would say is, don't be so quick to dismiss Munger as you know, okay, boomer or any of yeah. those <laughs> things that I. I think he's actually above a boomer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. But I think um, the oldest boomers are in their seventies right now, and he's well beyond that. Well, and I mean, so that's no surprise his feelings on on the matter. And I mean, I would imagine with things like Dogecoin, they just they just become magnified. 
Um, and so there you go. I mean, you you can agree with him or disagree with him, but but I mean, clearly uh, there are there are there's more than one opinion on the matter. I, out there. I saw something on a chat that said, "Well, you think his comments on Bitcoin were bad? You better be lucky he did, they didn't mention Dogecoin because his head would have exploded." <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I have a feeling there are going to be more of these uh, more of these types of things introduced. Um, in the near future, so it, it'll, it'll be interesting to watch how this market shakes out. And uh, but you know what else I've noticed? Nobody just kind of likes Bitcoin. <laughs> Everyone I, I either thinks it's like there. the next big thing in finance, yeah. or they are Charlie Munger. <laughs> it and it, it doesn't seem to be. I mean, it, it's difficult for me to fully wrap my head around why it matters. And and I've I've always said, and I and I stand by this. I mean, like Bitcoin bulls. To me, have done just they've done a phenomenal, phenomenally horrible job at explaining why it matters. I'm not saying it doesn't. Don't get me wrong. So don't at me. Understand, I don't care. Okay, I just don't care about Bitcoin. But what I am saying is they've done a very, very poor job of explaining why it really matters. I mean, you can tell me about decentralized and, and, and unhackable and yada yada yada. Uh, but but they've just done a very their poor job of explaining why it really matters, and so I'm sure we'll get a lot of people explaining, uh, y- you know, from here on out why it really matters on Twitter and whatnot, and that's fine. But but I, it 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 will be it will be interesting to watch that space evolve because you're right, you have it's it's either one or the other. You either love it or you hate it, and I would add maybe a third category, and I think I fall into this third category. You just are apathetic. You just really. Don't I was going to start. I was going to start calling you Jason Munger. <laughs> well, I, I just don't care. Yeah, that's there's so there's a third category of stuff. I don't lose sleep over it. If it works out, great. If it doesn't, fine. You know what? I know what I don't know. So maybe Munger would be proud of me because I've realized what I don't know, and that's really one of his more famous quotes, right? It revolves around, "Hey, know what you don't know," because that's when real wisdom starts kicking in. Um, so hey, we'll see. I mean, a sign of a good <laughs> investor is the the ability to change one's mind, and so maybe uh, maybe he'll change his mind one day. I don't know. We'll we'll have to wait and see. Um, let's talk about your third takeaway here because it's it's one we we did a whole month's worth of shows on these, and I, I'm not throwing out uh, all of these because there would be some babies that go out with this bathwater. But Buffett's problems with SPACs. Talk a little bit about that. Well. So Buffett first started talking about SPACs when asked about how they affect Berkshire's ability to find acquisitions. And he said that it's killing their ability to find deals. Yeah. There are, you know, 400 SPACs in the market all looking for targets. They all have a ton of cash. So things are getting expensive. He's pretty much saying that these SPACs are overpaying for businesses. He's saying it won't go on forever. That's where the money is now. That's what people are interested in now. Um, To be fair, take that with a grain of salt. People have been upset with Buffett's lack of ability to find deals for like five years now. So this has been going on for way before the SPAC boom, um, that, but that the cash hoard is just building up. And I think the whole elephant gun quote was before anyone knew what a SPAC was. <laughs> um, so with that in mind, but he's, his, his point is that SPACs pretty much have to deploy their capital within two years, which is true. That's usually the rule. And he said, if you put a gun to my head and tell me I have to buy a business in two years, I'd buy one. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily get the best deal, but I'd, I'd, I'd promise you I would take that money and buy a business with it. <laughs> um, uh, Munger being Munger said, it's not just stupid, it's shameful talking about the, the SPAC boom. <laughs> um, but Buffett was a little bit more thought out about it. 
Well, but, I mean, what you, Spax. I mean, I think I feel like we, you know we went over we went over a, a month's worth of shows talking about Spacks and the merits and and, and the the challenges and whatnot. I mean, I I I feel like Spacks have. I, I feel like there there are there probably going to be more losers in the space than winners, but there are going to be some important companies that come from this movement, right? I think there are going to be some important companies that have come public via via SPAC, and, and we won't be sorry that they were able to come public. You just have to be very discerning, it feels like, with this space. Yeah, and that, that was essentially the whole underlying theme of the shows we did. I mean, everyone knows that I'm a SPAC investor. I mean, this is, it's one area that I clearly disagree with Buffett and Munger on. Um, I think that out of the 400... There are probably like 10 you should pay attention to. Um, but there are going to be some great companies that go public. I mentioned like 23andMe is one that I'm a particularly big fan of um, as a company that's going public via SPAC. Um, I think Opendoor, which went public through SPAC last year, I think is a big one that's going to, that has a ton of market potential. Um, there have been some great companies that are going public through SPAC. Um I'd put App Harvest up there personally. I mean, App Harvest, uh, controlled environment agriculture, came public via SPAC. I mean, I, I think that's another one that, to me, uh, we talk about where we feel like the world is headed. I mean, I feel like that's solving a big problem, and, and I feel like that is that is a direction that the world needs to be headed. Whether App Harvest goes public this year or five years from now, maybe that doesn't necessarily make a difference, but but maybe it does. I mean, the SPAC gives them the opportunity to get public and have have those benefits, that capital access that they might not have otherwise. And, and so maybe they're a little bit earlier to the game, but but yeah, I feel like there's some companies out there that are important and it's just giving them a little bit of an earlier start. Yeah. I mean, th- think of it as like the class, like the SPAC class of 2020 and 2021. Um like you know, like any class, you got your your top ten percent that are going to go on to Ivy League schools or whatever. <laughs> and then you, I mean, with specs, stay away from the bottom of the class. Is kind of <laughs> the, the theme. Well, I think you just you just came up with an idea there, man. I feel like we need to we need to build out an, an Ivy League class of SPAC recommendations. Maybe that's the next. Maybe that's how we piggyback off the series of shows that we did earlier <laughs> in the year on SPACs, the Ivy League SPAC portfolio. I like it. <laughs> the Ivy League basket. There you go. There you go. Um, well, as as investors, we all make mistakes, and uh, Buffett and Munger are no exception. They've made their share as well. And and Warren talked about one of Berkshire's bigger mistakes, and what that uh, that was takeaway number four for you, Matt. What was one of Berkshire's bigger mistakes? Well, one of the things was what Buffett said was not a mistake, and that was selling the airlines. Remember, he got a ton of criticism for that last year. Um, selling all Berkshire's airline stocks at big losses after the pandemic broke out. And he would have made billions if he had just hung on to them now that they've rebounded. He said the airlines have been better off without Berkshire involved as an investor. And basically his point is that the government wouldn't have been as willing to bail out the airlines if they had an investor like Berkshire Hathaway backing them up. Yeah. So I can see that. So the airlines, he says, were not a mistake. So people wanted to hear that. He did say that it was a mistake that they sold some Apple stock last year. He even said that Munger tried to talk him out of it. <laughs> um, as we know, Apple is by far Berkshire's biggest stock position, worth well over $100 billion at this point. He sold a small amount, not a ton, but a, you know, several billion dollars worth. Um, and he said that was probably a mistake. He also said it was a mistake exiting Costco. 
Um, mm. If you remember, Ber- Berkshire sold out of Costco in the third quarter last year. I do remember that, yeah. Um, I do remember that. Relatively small investment by Berkshire standards. Only $1.3 billion. So, you know, peanuts. <laughs> but- well, I'm going to put you on the spot here because I feel like this is always something to talk about. And I've uh, got an idea of one I would use. But, but thinking of a Matt Frankel mistake, something something recently that stands out to you as an investor, a, a mistake that Matt Frankel made um, in, in his portfolio. Does anything stand out to you over the, over the past couple of years, something you did that you, you wish you didn't do in hindsight? Buy or sell, or you know, a, a, an error of commission or omission. It could be either or. Um, well, I probably shouldn't have sold Bitcoin in 2013. <laughs> well, very, very good. I'm glad. Okay, good. That's <laughs> humble. That's good. Good. I mean, I've talked about this several times. Like, I got in on the early days, really, just to figure out how it works. Um, back when Bitcoin was like in the single digits. Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> um, no know. one knew that it would get to this point. No, no. I mean, I, shoot, I, I remember not all that long ago, I, I sold some Chipotle, not all of it. Um, this was this was a few years back, but I sold some Chipotle, the majority of the position, uh, to reinvest that money elsewhere. And clearly, I mean, selling some of that Chipotle at, I don't know, it was $400 a share maybe at the time. I mean, in hindsight, do I wish I did that? Well, yeah. Probably could have just left that money alone, and it would have done fine. And I reinvested that capital in other investments that have performed well. So uh, I'm not sure, but uh, you know that's one that I certainly think about from time to time. I, I have a I have a better, more recent one. Yeah. Um, so early 2020, um, we started hearing about this coronavirus that was going around Asia. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, I think when, when everyone was like, you know, didn't even pay it any mind. Um, then, you know, we got the first case. I think it was Washington State had a few cases at first, and everyone's like, yeah, it's, it's going to fizzle out, whatever. Um, so the market went down kind of in fear of the, the, the coronavirus. It wasn't even called COVID-19 at that point. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it went down a little bit, and I put a bunch of money to work saying that this is a silly overreaction. In, in late February, I bought uh, Occidental Petroleum. I bought a few. I bought Goldman Sachs. And then the pandemic hit, and I was. It turns out everyone was right. I was way too early. Um, I wish I had put more money to work in late March and not so much in late February. Um, I should have let the the COVID at the time the COVID scare. I should have let it play out a little further. Um, that 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 was that was a mistake. Now I know to just kind of be patient and let things play out before you react. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, in hindsight, I guess the idea is we know we're going to make mistakes. It's just the, the real key is figuring out the lesson from them so that you can uh, try to avoid repeating that mistake in the future. And um, it sounds like, it, you know, hey, listen, at least we're recognizing the mistakes and we just uh, just got to learn from them. Uh, what is takeaway number five? I, I think this is kind of an interesting one that uh, much like Bitcoin could could potentially ruffle a few feathers. But what was takeaway number five? Well, it shouldn't surprise you to learn that Buffett is not a Robin Hood trader. <laughs> if anyone was worried <laughs> no, that surprising. he was going to jump on the platform and start buying GameStop, that's not the case. <laughs> um, he kind of criticized Robin Hood for the, the gamification of it, which we've done on this show a few times. We, we've talked about how Robinhood kind of turns investing into a casino, and that was their biggest driver of success, I would even go so far as to say, in 2020, when there were no casinos, there were no sports to bet on, there was no, you know, so that became the casino, and that's, that brought a lot of, I mean, the number one Reddit thread on investing is called Wall Street Bets. I mean, that's <laughs> it. you can't tell me that investing hasn't been gamified. 
<laughs> when that's what's getting all the headlines. Um, so Buffett's caution is, he said, this creates a, its own reality for a while. Um, and it does, because how many times have you seen people say on Twitter and stuff, stocks always go up in the past year? <laughs> Or things, to, or things to that effect. Or, yeah, the stonks or whatever. Um, and he says that nobody's going to tell you when the clock is going to strike, tw- strike 12 and it all turns into pumpkins and mice. Um, and in some stocks, it actually happened. Um, you know, the, the, some of the really speculative SPAC stocks, you know, have, you know or, or some of the short squeeze stocks that we've seen, you know, did not always go up, lo and behold. Um, he did say he's interested in lo- reading Robin Hood's uh, IPO filing when it when it comes out um, to see. But he said it's he called it part of the casino group. Uh, Munger had some equally nasty comments about it. He said it's it's awful that something like that brought investments from civilized men and decent citizens and brought it into Robin Hood's platform. Um, so the, the two are not fans, um, and it's just like. It, there are always people who are going to invest in the wrong ways. That's why Buffett's advice has been so widely followed for so many years. This dates way before the Robin Hood uh, thing ever started. Um, you know, people investing in the wrong way. But he, you know, he said that just kind of really adds to the, the gambling atmosphere of it. I mean, people have referred to Wall Street as a casino long before Robin Hood got involved in things. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's not that Robin Hood's making it into a casino it's that they're taking the they're you know it's like the casino had the roulette table and robin Hood's just adding the flashy lights on top of it (laughs) um is kind of what's going on well they 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 replied i mean they responded to that they there was a a blog post out this morning um from a the head of of public policy communications at robin hood to counter uh buffett munger's comments and um I mean, ultimately, they they feel that that uh, Buffett and and Munger have insulted uh, a new generation through their comments on on Robin Hood. Robin Hood. So, I mean, I, I guess it uh, it remains to be seen um, exactly how this all works out. I think uh, the criticisms that have been lobbed up against Robin Hood are fair, and uh, again, building something like that from the ground up, you're bound to make some mistakes and, and learn some things along the way. So I, I, I will not be uh, one to jump on the bandwagon saying that Robin Hood's days are, are numbered, uh, but but perhaps they need to uh, be a little bit more thoughtful in how they build out this platform uh, if, if they want to really uh, build the next generation of investors as opposed to the next generation of traders or gamblers because clearly they're, they're two very different things yeah for sure and i mean i'm not a robin hood user i've said that there are some cases where it could be a good platform to use especially for cryptocurrency investors i've made that case where you know it's a good place to have everything in one place um but you know there, there's it it has one thing's for sure it has brought millions of people into the investing world Yes. Whether yep. that's there a good or no bad question. thing and they're doing it the right way or not is up for debate, but they have really brought a new generation of investors into the markets. Um, I'd like to see them kind of double down on like education and things like that, kind of the way SoFi's doing. Yeah. Um, like SoFi is partnering with Coursera to create personal finance classes ah, that it's yeah. giving to its members. I would love to see Robinhood doing something like that. That's really my big issue with Robinhood is that they don't they don't emphasize investing. They emphasize trading. It feels like. So that's kind of my big issue with Robin Hood. Well, well, we shall see. 
Um, well, that's that's great stuff. Thanks for for digging into that meeting. And and like you said, I mean, of, of course there there are probably countless takeaways, but we've we've got to draw the line somewhere. Those were five really fun ones to talk about. Uh, before we wrap up the show today, we have a few earnings reports that we wanted to get to here that uh, came out recently. So let's just take these one by one, and I'll go ahead and open up with Capital One Finance, Matt. What stood out to you for Capital One's quarter uh, that, that was reported uh, last week? Well, if you, if you rewind to our bank earnings show last time, every bank beat at earnings pretty much. Every bank had a good quarter, especially when you compare it to the first quarter of 2020, um, when they were setting aside all these reserves, You know, the sky was falling, this, that, and the other thing. Capital One had a pretty good quarter even without that. Net income was significantly up over last year. Um, a lot of that was reserve releases. Their net income was $3.3 billion. They released $1.6 billion in reserves out of that. So that, you know, about half of their income. Um, excluding any reserve activity, including their setting aside last year and their re- releasing this year, earnings were up 1% year over year. Not terribly exciting, but definitely not bad, considering that interest rates have gone down considerably since the first quarter of 2020. Um, total revenue was down 3% thanks to lower interest rates from, by the, for the most part. Um, non-interest expense was down 7%, which helped to offset that a little bit. Uh, they spent a lot less on marketing over the past year, for, for, for instance. Um, Capital One's one of the most efficient banks I've heard of, that's especially out of the brick-and-mortar banks, which before I had been to D.C. for full HQ, I had never even known that Capital One was a real physical bank. <laughs> Because we don't have them down here. I thought they it was a just a credit card everything. company. Uh, this was years ago. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a Capital One building. What's that? Um, <laughs> and then, lo and behold, that's where the capital comes from. So, fun that's fact. Right. That's um, right. <laughs> but anyways, uh, efficiency ratio is about fi- a little under 53%, which is really good for a, a bank, that, a branch-based bank. Um, net interest margin is almost 6%. Most banks run about 3%. That's because of the high amount of credit card loans, which are higher interest loans. Um, the credit card loan portfolio is down 7% year over year. We mentioned this last week, last time we did, uh, when we did the bank earnings. Um, consumers have had a lot of cash in the way of stimulus checks, things like that, extra cash being pumped in, and they've had less opportunity to spend. Um, think about like how much you've spent traveling over the past year compared to the year before. Um, so consumers have just had less opportunity to spend and extra cash coming in. So cre- they're spending less on their credit cards. That's probably a good thing for society, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, lower credit card debt. <laughs> yeah. um, but for Capital One, the, lo- the credit card loan portfolio is down 7%. Um, their consumer loan portfolio, which is mostly auto loans, was up 2%. Overall, that balances out to uh, down 3% on their loan portfolio. Uh, the deposit base grew not as much as some competitors. They now have about $310 billion in deposits versus only about $243 billion in loans. So they have some money to lend. They have Their, their loan portfolio is well, well covered by, by low-cost deposits. Uh, nice capital structure there. But all in all, I'd say it was a pretty good quarter. Are you, are you a Capital One fan, being that you're more in their, their geographic area? Um, I, I, I am not a, I'm not a Capital One account holder. I'm not a Capital One user. But, but I actually, the more I learn about the business, the more... I actually become a fan of it. I mean, I, I like I, I like that they have they have such a strong focus on on credit cards, um, in, in being able to open up that 
that product landscape for for consumers of so many different consumers at so many different levels. It feels like they've been able to do that very well. Uh, whereas you look at another company, and maybe this just segues perfectly into this next earnings review, uh, but a company like America Express that has had to pivot from this identity of being a card for the wealthy to to really having a card for everyone. And so with that in mind, I mean, uh, American Express was another uh, company that, that reported earnings here recently. We wanted to dig into that one as well. Um, what stood out to you there for American Express's quarter? Well, their stock actually took a dive after earnings. Um, revenue was down 12% year over year, which in a lot of the cases, like we mentioned with Capital One, earnings were down year over year or, or pretty flat. But revenue did okay. Um, revenue wasn't down double digits like American Express's was. Um, so that, that I think, uh, bothered people a little bit. Um, the, the co- comparing it to the year, to first quarter of 2020, not very useful. Um, but just like Capital One, about half of their net income for the quarter was reserve releases. They released a little over a billion dollars. Um, they saw lower loan volumes and credit card spending, just like Capital One. Um so card member spending, just comparing it to a year before COVID. So, you know, like I said, 2020 is not very useful for comparison. Here's one thing that I found really interesting. Spending on card, on American Express cards, excluding travel and entertainment, which people aren't spending money on still for the most part, was up 11% year from 2019 levels. That's pretty impressive. So everything other than travel and enter- entertainment was nicely higher. Unfortunately, American Express makes its money by selling cards based on travel and entertainment benefits. Um, I mean, the the key perk to my American Express Platinum card is being able to use airport lounges. Um, you know, their big credit card partnership is Delta, um, so they have the Delta branded American Express cards. So if you ex- of you know, if, of course, if you exclude travel and entertainment, it's going to look okay, but that's a big piece of the puzzle. Um, so I think that that also uh, spooked investors a little bit. Um, they did say that they've seen an uptick of, on um, travel and entertainment spending in recent weeks. So that's promising. But, you know, the fact that they had to kind of back that out to even compare it with two years ago is yeah, not that impressive. Um, they and, and they came out and said that, that 2021, they're, they're viewing it as a transition year. Um so they're 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 investing. They're they're trying to grow their core business. Um, I like I, said, I mentioned I have the platinum card. Uh, they did a really great job of pivoting to some non-travel benefits um, that people were able to use in COVID times. Um, they did a, a store credit at Home Depot was one of the big ones um, that I I was able to use. They did a, a online uh, credit at Best Buy, online credit at Gold Belly, which if you haven't used Gold Belly. It's where you order food from restaurants from all over the country to have it shipped to you. Um, they did a credit for that for members, which we used and was was really fun. Um, so they've really done a great job of like engaging their customers. I don't know of any other major like high end credit cards that have really pivoted their benefits like that. Um, so I'm still a fan of American Express. Um, I may add to my position. I, I'm a share. I've been that was the first first financial stock I ever bought. Um, you know, almost 10 years ago. Okay, well, let's wrap it up then with SVB Group, because that's another one, SVB, SVB Financial, um, a, a company that, again, is, is very popular in our Foolish Universe, but uh, one that maybe doesn't get quite as much 
play as some of the others. But what about SVB Financial stood out to you? So this is Silicon Valley Bank uh, is what the, the SVB stands for, for those who aren't right. familiar with the business. Um, as, the na- as the name implies, they're based in Silicon Valley. <laughs> they, they, le- they loan a lot to tech businesses, startups like that. Um, they're a big kind of, they're essentially consider them a bank and a venture capital firm in one is kind of how I could describe it. The market's been fantastic for things like that. <laughs> I mean, think of how the, how the NASDAQ's done over the past year. Um, it's been a great, um, great year for the bank. So not terribly surprising. The bank's earnings exceeded expectations, but what was surprising is it was the best quarter in the bank's history. Um, the bank earned over $10 a share for the quarter, best ever. The stock shot up 12% after earnings. Um, the return on equity was 27%. Standard for a bank is about 10% is what you're looking for. Um, they grew their assets. I, you know, a bank's assets might grow five to seven percent in a year. Would be considered a good year for like a Bank of America. S, uh, SVB's assets grew ninety percent year over year. Um, total client funds grew uh, grew seventy one percent year over year. That's a pretty impressive increase. And the CEO says there are significant tailwinds at this point for even more growth. <laughs> Jason's dog just popped on. You just missed him again. Um, <laughs> the CEO says that there's tailwinds for growth, um, which makes people um, really optimistic that this isn't just a one-time thing. Remember we mentioned uh, last week in a lot of the banks that some of the things were kind of just temporary, like um, the higher trading revenue fueled by the, the volatility in the markets, higher uh, investment banking revenue fueled by IPOs. If if investment activity in the tech sector is really here to stay and it's going to ramp up for a while, um, then, then it's a, it's going to be a positive catalyst for this bank. Well, it's something to keep an eye on for sure. As we continue on through earnings season and the rest of the year. Uh, but Matt, I think for now that is going to wrap it up for us this week. I really appreciate you not only taking the time to dig into those, uh, takeaways from Berkshire Hathaway's meeting, but also to dig into those earnings reports. Um, uh, as earnings producer rolls on, I mean, we just have so many companies announcing on a daily basis. Uh, it's nice to be able to jump in there and, and make some sense of it all. So thanks again. Of course, always fun to be here. Yep, and we'll look forward to doing it again next week. Until then, remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or you can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 